This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello there, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 70, 70, entitled, What Does Son of God Mean in John's Gospel, Part 7? As always, the Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. As always, my name is Dustin Smith. I am your host. If this is your first time to the podcast, welcome. I'm happy to have you. Be sure to subscribe so that you will not miss out on future episodes. And if you are a regular listener, welcome back and thanks so much for listening. What does Son of God mean in the fourth gospel? Does the title Son of God refer to the second member of a supposed trinity or referring to one who is divine? Or does the Gospel of John have a more nuanced meaning of this critically important title of Jesus Christ? This episode seeks to examine what Son of God means within the context of John chapter 11, the chapter where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Does the ability to give new life to a dead person prove that the Son of God is really a divine figure? Find out today on the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Let's begin by reading our passage from John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, He then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go, so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to the fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found out that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him 
but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. That's John 11, verses 1 through 27. This passage has two references to Jesus as the Son of God in verses 4 and 27. Based on this passage of Scripture, we can exegete the meaning of Son of God into three discernible descriptive summaries. Let us look at them in detail. Our first point today is that the Son of God is one who will be glorified in his death. In John 11 and verse 4, Jesus calls himself the Son of God. So this seems to be a logical place to start our study of this chapter. In this verse, Jesus states that Lazarus' sickness will not end in death, but it will end in the glory of God, specifically by the Son of God being glorified. For the readers of the Gospel of John, they already know that the resurrection of Lazarus is the tipping point that leads to Jesus' death. This means that John 11 and verse 4 is loaded with irony. The miracle will not end in the death of Lazarus, but it will end with the death of Jesus. What is important for our study is that this death is described as the glorification of the Son of God. Throughout the Gospel of John, the verb glorify is used of Jesus. And the most common way that it is used to describe Jesus is to describe Jesus' death. This is a key theme within the Gospel of John, that the death of Jesus is regarded as his glorification. Note the following examples. First example is in John 7 and verse 39, which says, But this he spoke of the Spirit, which those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's John 7, 39. Next passage. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. John 12, 16. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. John 12, 23-24. In the next passage, Jesus spoke of these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. John 17 and verse 1. 
As we can observe, the glorification of the Son of God involves his death on the cross. This is the key point of John 11 and verse 4, that the miracle involving Lazarus will ultimately end in Jesus' death, wherein he will be glorified. The Son of God here is, therefore, described as one who is mortal, susceptible to death, and is thereby in need of God to raise him back to life. There is no sense in our present passage or in any of the other passages regarding the glorification of Jesus that is to take place in his death that the Son of God is immortal. Neither is there any indication that only the human side of the Son of God died while the supposed divine side didn't die, as if the Son of God possess two natures. No, the death of the Son of God was an actual death. The Son of God died, meaning he was not immortal. In fact, the Son of God had to legitimately die, according to the Gospel of John, in order for the glorification to be real and legitimate. We have, therefore, learned that Son of God does not refer to an immortal divine being. Our second point today is that the Son of God is empowered with God's divine prerogatives. After Lazarus had died and Jesus arrived in Bethany, Jesus has a conversation with Martha, one of Lazarus's sisters. In her expression of trust that God can and will work through Jesus, Martha makes a very important observation in John 11 and verse 22. She says, Whatever you ask of God, God will give you. End quote. This comment is crucially important to the Christology of Son of God. God gives to and empowers the Son of God with God's own privileges and prerogatives. The Son of God does not possess them innately. Rather, he is given them by God. It is with this understanding of how the Son of God functions in relation to God that we can now move to Jesus' response to this astute observation. Jesus answers and says to Martha, Lazarus will indeed arise, 11.23. Martha responds by affirming this truth stating that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day, John 11:24. Jesus then offers a bold statement in 11:25, quote, "I am the resurrection and the life." End quote. Thus, placing not only the life-giving act of raising the dead, but also the role of the judge who judges whether someone will be raised unto eternal life, into the person of the Son of God. In other words, Jesus, speaking as the Son of God, declares that he is now the locus of life-giving and judging. It is important to remember that the act of life-giving and the role of the judge were prerogatives regarded as belonging to God alone. A few examples will suffice to make this point from the Hebrew Bible. Deuteronomy 32:39 has the Lord, Yahweh, saying, 
It is I who puts to death and gives life. I have wounded, and it is I who heals. Deuteronomy 32, 39. We also learn in Psalm 7 that it is the Lord, Yahweh, who judges the people. And the psalmist says, Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. Psalm 7 and verse 8. However, it is important to note that on rare occasion, God has shared these unique prerogatives with human agents. Both Elijah and Elisha the prophets were able to raise the dead on select occasions. Psalm 82, a psalm already referenced in John chapter 10, is about human judges to whom God has invested the role of judging the weak and the afflicted. So, the privileges of giving life and judging have been shared by God with human agents on certain occasions. We've also noted that John's Gospel makes it a point in John chapter 5 that Jesus is the recipient of these divine prerogatives. Precisely because God has given these privileges to Jesus as the authorized Son of God. John 5:19-22. Stated plainly, Jesus is not the one who resurrects and gives eternal life on the last day because he innately possesses these abilities and prerogatives. He is only able to accomplish these acts because God has empowered him and authorized him to do so. This, of course, was plainly stated by Martha when she said, Whatever you ask of God, God gives to you. And this has been a recurring theme in Jesus' dialogues with his opponents who questioned whether Jesus was truly the Messiah authorized by God. It should be stated, if we are to be fair to the claims that Jesus is making by declaring himself as the resurrection and the life, that Jesus is claiming to be the climactic locus of these divine prerogatives. Jesus is on another level with these privileges. Yes, a few Old Testament prophets could raise the dead, but Jesus is able to raise the dead on a grand scale, offering them eternal life. Yes, a handful of human judges exercise the role of God's judgment within Israel, but Jesus will judge every person at the resurrection to decide if they are to receive a resurrection unto life or a resurrection unto judgment, John 5, 28-29. Jesus is able to exercise both the role of life giver and judge to their fullest capabilities, just as God is able to, while Elijah, Elisha, and the human judges could only function as empowered agents in a limited capacity. What we learn from our passage is that Jesus bears the full authority and empowerment from God the Father to perform the life-giving act of resurrection and to judge humanity in a heightened and climactic measure. Our third point today is that the Son of God is the anointed King. After Jesus definitively states that he is the locus of life-giving and judging, 
Martha makes a confessional statement about Jesus and his identity. Quote, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. End quote. John 11, verse 27. While it is disputed as to whether the last phrase, the one coming into the world, is a third title or more of a description, what can be said with some certainty is that Christ and Son of God are regarded as synonyms. The equating of Christ and Son of God has a long history and was likely solidified early on in the early church's preaching. Psalm 2 speaks of the Anointed One as the King distinct from Yahweh. And the King is declared by Yahweh himself to be Son of God. Psalm 2 and verse 2 and Psalm 2 verse 7. The baptism of Jesus in the beginning of all four Gospels declares the newly anointed one as Son of God. Peter's famous confession, as recorded in Matthew 16, 16, identifies Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Martha makes the same confession here in John eleven twenty seven, And the Gospel of John concludes in John twenty thirty one by saying the summary of its contents is so that we may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So Martha's confession can't be regarded as some underdeveloped Christology that misses the big picture or leaves out some supposed higher Christological emphasis. Her confession is the very same as the Gospel of John's own summary statement of what it wants its readers to walk away with after reading it in John 20, verse 31. As the Anointed One, the Christ, Jesus is, of course, anointed by someone else. The Son of God did not anoint himself. God anointed him. This means that the Anointed One owes his position and vocation to God. The one who anoints, authorizes, and empowers the Son of God. In conclusion, we have observed that John chapter 11 speaks of Jesus as the Son of God in two very important points of its narrative, once by Jesus himself and once in a confessional statement by Martha. In the raising of Lazarus within the Gospel of John, the stage is set for the glorification of the Son of God. It is in the death and resurrection of the Son of God that this glorification is to take place. The raising of Lazarus ironically leads to the glorious death of the Son of God. This indicates that the Son of God is mortal, being susceptible to death, and is in need of God's intervention in order to be raised from the dead. In other words, the Son of God is not an immortal divine being. Furthermore, we observe that the Son of God is one who was invested with God's prerogatives and privileges, namely, with the empowerment to give life and to judge. Jesus, speaking as the resurrection and the life, functions as God's empowered agent 
in exercising these divine prerogatives, but doing so precisely as the Son of God. Lastly, we observe that the Son of God was equivalent to the title Christ, the Anointed King. The Anointed One is one who is clearly distinct from the one who anoints, just as the Son of God is distinct from God himself. There is no indication in the Lazarus narrative that Son of God refers to a pre-existing being from heaven or one who is immortally divine. Neither is there any evidence that Son of God refers to the second member of a supposed triune Godhead. The Son of God is always distinct from God in heaven, functioning as the authorized agent of the Father's redemptive purposes for the world. The depiction of Son of God in John chapter 11 fits best within a high human Christological paradigm rather than a Trinitarian Christology. Please look forward to subsequent episodes where we will dig deeper into the Gospel of John in its understanding of the title Son of God. And if you think this podcast speaks truth to you, be sure to share it with your friends and your family. Thank you so much for listening to us. Again, my name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.